We need to take our Bibles this morning before our time around the communion table and return to our study of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, that glorious chapter by which we are reaching the pinnacle, the apex, if you will, of all that Paul has taught us through the grand truths that we have learned since the beginning from understanding the wrath of God being upon all men to the great glory of God saving the ungodly by His grace through the sacrifice of His Son, thereby justifying those who believe. On this first Lord's Day of this new year, it's my desire that each and every one of us start out the new year being encouraged. Being encouraged. Now, though as putting my notes together for this, I have to admit that I'm not the best or the most gifted at helping others with encouragement. Some of you may say, here, here, in the way I view life and the way that I process the living information coming into my intellectual sensors throughout my days that I am here, I process it in such a way that many are not very encouraged oftentimes through my interactions with them. That's not my desire that that be the case. My desire is to encourage every person that I come in contact with and interact with and by way of the process of life, some describe me as mostly a pessimist. All of you know the idea of a pessimist. It is said that their view of the glass of life is half empty. That's the idea of a pessimist. In other words, the pessimist is described as being or as seeing things from the negative side. From the negative side. Of course, that is opposed to the description that is used of others that are described as optimists. That person who sees the glass of life as being half full. The optimist, it is said, looks at life from the positive side. Well, I've been reading through the Scriptures this year. I began again a chronological reading through the Scriptures, and I want to set a goal for myself this year to try to do it twice. So I'm reading double every day of my chronological reading, and I find myself in the book of Job recently. That comes right in chronological fashion after chapter 11 of Genesis. And so I'm well into the book of Job, and I wonder if Job was a pessimist or an optimist. You see, if you have read through Job, and you see all that Job goes through, which is really just a picture, a vignette picture of the scope of Job's entire life. We just get a little snapshot of it. All of the good and all of the bad, and his friends, by the way, are on both sides of that equation. At times you might describe Job as a pessimist, and at other times you might describe Job as an optimist. But I want to submit to us today that Job was neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Job was actually a realist. In other words, Job was looking at life as life. And at times it was truly difficult, and at other times it seemed to be easier. And Job looked at his life from both sides, and therefore he was a realist. And realism is encouraging. Why? Because realism is where God dwells. This morning you're probably wondering why I said all of that when we're not studying Job. 
but we are in Romans. Well, I said all that about Job because his life, or at least the part of his life that we get to see in the book of Job, are familiar to all of us. And because the text that we are about to enter into this morning is one that ought to be encouraging to us because it is a text all about realism. The Apostle Paul has declared to us as Christians that we are now and we never will be forever and ever and ever condemned by a God because we are united with Jesus Christ. We know that. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. You are therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are united with Jesus Christ. You're in Jesus Christ. We have an assured salvation. For God, as I said a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, for God to condemn us would be for God to have to condemn His Son. Impossible. And Paul has been proving the veracity of that declaration to us throughout this entire chapter. He has been driving at this reality of an assured salvation all through our study of Romans, but particularly in chapter 8, he is highlighting it at every point. And we are looking at those proofs, and we've been looking at seven of those proofs that are in this chapter that show us without a doubt that we are not condemned if we are in Christ, if we are believers. And this morning I want us to begin to just scratch the surface of the sixth proof in this list. The sixth proof. We've looked at five already. We've already seen our unity with Christ. That's our position. We have already seen the work of the Holy Spirit in us, which changes our character. We live by the Spirit. We have already seen the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to change our identity. We are identified by means of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ so that we are now called children of God. We've seen the inheritance that we have in glory, which is our future glorification, which is in Christ all of the spiritual blessings that we have through that. That's our place. And then fifthly, we saw the Holy Spirit's intercessory work for us last Lord's Day. He's our helper even when we don't know what to pray for. Even that in and of itself is a gift from the Spirit to us as we groan before God. This morning I want to see the sixth. And that is the guarantee of our salvation through the very character of God or realism. Our guarantee, realism. In verses 26 and 27, we learn that even in those times on the Christian road where life is very hard, where it's perplexing, we don't even know what to pray, even at those times there are spirit-directed and those Confused and wordless prayers are directed by the Spirit according to the will of God on our behalf. And that's very comforting to us. And what an encouragement for each of us to know that even when we don't know what to pray for, that even that moment and those unspoken groanings are God-ordained. That even those unspoken prayers where we don't know what to pray assure us of our salvation. 
And then Paul encourages us with these words in verses 28 through 34 of Romans chapter 8. Here is our guarantee. Realism. Let me read it for us. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, who delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Now the first truth that we should notice as we have read through that text is that once again we are introduced to the reality that for us as Christians there are certain truths that are intuitive. You may not think of your Christian life like that. You may not think that that is a reality for you as a Christian, but it is a reality. There are certain truths for you as a Christian that are intuitive. We intuitively know certain things concerning our Christianity because they are tied to the very character of God. In fact, Paul uses this phraseology here five times just in Romans. He says in Romans chapter 2, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. In other words, the character of God is so rich and so perfect that we know that God's judgment rightly falls upon those who aren't like God, who aren't perfect. That's an intuitive reality. We know that. In chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. We know that if you're going to try to live according to the rules of, of God, if you're going to try to say that you can gain righteousness through means of your own efforts, you know that the law will shut you up because you have to be perfect. That the law reflects the very character of God. And so unless you're like God, you're going to be condemned unless you are perfect. We know that. It's intuitive. Chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I'm of the flesh. I'm sold into bondage of sin. I know there's nothing wrong with the law. That's an intuitive reality. It's an intuitive understanding. I know that. I know the law is perfect, and I'm not perfect. Chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 
We know that even God's creation was subjected to the things and the, the, the ravages of sin's consequences. And it is waiting for the day for us to be glorified. The whole cre- We know that it's an intuitive reality based upon the very character and promise of God. We know that. And so here in Romans 8.28, Paul then again says the same thing. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who have been called according to His purpose. And so as we begin this morning, we cannot miss that point. We cannot miss what the Holy Spirit is saying to us by means of the Apostle Paul, that there is something in each and every one of us who is a Christian, we know this to be true. We know this reality is an absolute reality. We know this is realism, and we know it because we are united with Jesus Christ by faith, and this reflects the very character of God. We know that. In other words, this is realism in its clearest definition. This is realism at its best. And its truth is only for the Christian. Did you hear me say that? The truth of this very passage is only for the Christian. Let me make that clear as we begin our time this morning. What we are learning about here in Romans 8, verse 28 and following is not something that has impact for all of humanity. It is not a general principle by which this passage will affect everybody or does affect everybody. This is only for the Christian. And I need to say that because there are some, some even within, shockingly, modern evangelicalism, which we would call orthodox Christianity and orthodox thinking, who have tried to define this truth as universal, as if it applies to all mankind in general, because after all, Everything seems to work out okay. It's a kind of fanciful optimism. That's the idea of being optimistic. It's a kind of idea of looking at it fancifully as if everything seems to come out in the end. But it is patently clear here in Romans 8.28 from the two qualifying phrases that the promise is only for the Christian and no one else. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Paul says, to those who love God, and he further defines that reality by those who are called according to the purpose of God. And so, Paul is doing as he has done throughout the entire study. He is making a declaration, and then he is in the verses to follow giving proof for why he can make such a statement of realism. And the proof in verses 29 through 34 are all about the unchangeable nature of God in His divine decrees concerning you, the Christian. So this is a remarkable statement. It's one of the most encouraging statements in all of the Bible. The declaration says we know that God causes all things to work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I've already made it clear to us that it is not a universal statement for every person who has ever lived and who will ever live. This is only a statement that applies to the Christian. So it is false optimism to go on thinking and to go on speaking that God works all things for good to all people. That's false optimism. That's not true. Even Job's friends didn't have that kind of false optimism about Job's life. They looked at what was happening in Job's life and they came to the wrong conclusion about Job But they certainly didn't have a false optimism about Job. Hey, Job, don't worry about it. Everything's going to work out in the end. In fact, from their misunderstanding of God, they were actually preaching a sense of pessimism to Job. Because they had told Job all of it was happening because of his own sin. But it's clear from Romans 8.28 that this promise is an exclusive reality and it's exclusive for only those who are truly saved. That's what a Christian is at their very core. They are those who are continually loving God. That's the idea there. Love is a, is a present participle. It's an ongoing reality. Those who are loving God is the way it really, the essence of how it's said. All things work together for good to those who are loving God. That's the the reflection of their life because they have been called by God according to His purpose. They are truly saved. They have the effectual calling of God upon their life. God has saved them and therefore they are loving God in their life. He doesn't say they are being perfect in everything they do. They are still sinners, but the reflection of their life is the idea there. They are a person who loves God. Therefore, when we think of Job's life, we think of the lives of every Christian. Our Christianity, and that is the only secure place there is, our Christianity, especially when we find ourselves in the darkest places on the Christian road, is a secure place. So think about with me this morning what this verse is saying. Because I can well imagine that you have quoted this verse either for yourself or for others over the course of your life. This is kind of like John 3.16. We know it that well. We say it that often. Because we're very familiar with these words. And it's my desire that we be just as familiar with their, their intent. Because notice what it says. And we know that God causes all things. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't have the words God causes. Some of the earliest manuscripts said we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But either way, whether the manuscript has God causes or whether The manuscript doesn't have those words there. Either way, the intent is the same because of the verses that follow. We know that the reality of this 
passage is because of the verses 29 through 34. The orchestration of God. It is God's orchestration. It is what God is doing on behalf of those whom are His. And so I want us to hone in on those words, all things. Because I've read and heard some say that all things means only trials and only tribulations. That God only uses trials and tribulations to work out for good things. And I don't really see anything in the context as I've read through this and as I've studied this passage, I don't see anything in the context that lends me to lean in that direction. So I'm inclined to believe it means all things. And that means everything in our life. Everything. Good things and bad things. Happy things, disappointing things, things that I understand and things that I don't understand, and everything and every category in between. I believe the best argument for it being everything is the final verses of this entire chapter. Who shall separate us, verse 35 says. For I am convinced, go down to verse 38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That seems like all things to me. If nothing at all in the created order can separate me from the love of God, then how in the world is there something happening with me that isn't in the all things category? Maybe I'm missing something. I'm missing something. You see, if we think there is something outside the all things, then we're going to have the tendency to see life in the categories of optimism and pessimism. Sometimes it will appear to us that even the unsaved are the favorites of God. Just like Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 seems to indicate until the psalmist comes to his senses. It even seemed in some ways like that to Job as he was thinking about his life. Sometimes it will seem like those who are unsaved are God's favorites because their lives seem to be so much better than mine. In fact, that's how Job's friends saw his life. Well, Job, you know, bad things only happen to bad people, and since your life is going so badly, tell us what the bad is that you're doing, Job. So we have to see this statement for what it is. That as Christians, all things are working together for our good. All things. I wonder this morning, do you realize that about your life right now? Do you realize that about your life as you sit here 
this first Sunday of the year 2019 right now that God is actually overruling everything in His creation for your good. Think about it, parents. He has set perfectly in motion that rebellious child that tests your very patience every day. He has set that in motion for your good. Think about it. That cantankerous boss that never seems to be pleased by your efforts, God has perfectly set in motion for your good. That chronic illness that you wake up to every morning and you lay down to every night and you pray that God would take it away. God has given it to you, orchestrated it perfectly for your good. That financial struggle that you're in whether it be because of your own disobedience or whether it be simply because God has done like He did with Job. God has orchestrated it for your good. You see, that's realism. That's realism. In a sense, here in verse 28, we hear again the truth that we've already heard back in chapter 5. Just remind you of it again, just as I was reminded of it even this week. Chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have obtained our inheritance or our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint hope does not disappoint Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 have hope live according to hope because you intuitively know this you intuitively know that according to the very character of the one who saved you in his son, who has joined you into the, the, the reality of his son by means of the Holy Spirit through the faith that he granted you, that you would believe, that you know by his very character that everything that he is doing in your life, everything that he is allowing in the moment, every difficulty, every good thing, everything that you might look at, the dark valleys that you might be walking in in the very moment, you know that God has fashioned those for your good. All things work together 
for our good. Good things, bad things, trials, tribulations, all of it. Failures, disappointments, struggles, accidents, illnesses. God can make all and does make all those things work for the ultimate good of his children. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand here because Paul isn't trying to say that bad things in and of themselves are good things. That's not what Paul's trying to say. Sin is not good. Sin is bad. Tribulations, persecutions are not good in and of themselves. They hurt, they're painful. They're difficult. In fact, Job lost all of his children in one day. I don't know anybody who would say that's good. That's bad. But God deliberately works all those bad things for our ultimate good. I say that because some have misunderstood this. And they go to the extreme and they begin to deliberately bring about bad things into their life as if that's what this verse is talking about. A kind of spiritual asceticism like the monks do. Or those who go on pilgrimages and crawl for miles on their hands and knees in order to make themselves bleed because in that is some kind of sense of spiritual lightning. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that you can be rest assured that as a Christian, whatever God has allowed in your life, it is for your ultimate good. God is shaping you into the likeness of His Son. We're not going to get into it this morning, but that's, in, that's exactly what verse 29 is saying. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the ultimate good, that you be like Christ. That your character be reflective of Christ. That your life be like Christ in every way. One thing we can surely learn from the life of Job is that Job never thought more about God in his life and his relationship to God in his life than when he was going through the dark valley that he was walking through. Beloved, this morning, I guess that's all I really hope that we might grasp. Because the most dangerous place for us to be in our spiritual lives is that place where everything is just cruising along without any trouble. It's the most dangerous place for us to be. In those times, our sinful flesh just lures us into asking God to take the day off. We're just cruising. Everything's going fine. Go ahead, God. Take the day off. I got it under control. No need for you today. 
in those times, we have a tendency to tell God we can handle everything. And it's at those very times that we are most vulnerable to the enemy. But what happens when trial comes? What happens when difficulty comes? What happens when something is orchestrated by God into your very life? You know what happens? First thing that happens is your attention is arrested. You're wakened. Your spiritual adrenaline is now pumping. You're alert that something is taking place. You're made to think. And now, in that place, you're ready to pay attention, not just to the problem. You're not just ready to pay attention to what's happening, but you're ready to pay attention to your own life and how you're living. That's what happens. Listen, you don't necessarily think about how and what you'll eat until your heart begins to give you trouble, do you? You don't think about your health until your health becomes a problem. How many of you got up this morning and thought about, maybe there's somebody, but how many of you people got up this morning and thought about your little toe on your right foot? Oh, nobody. Huh. I bet if you had a hangnail on that toe, you'd think of it all the time I'm talking to you. See, we don't think about it when there's no trouble. We don't think about it when there's no difficulty. But we pay attention and we change when the difficulty comes. It's the same way in our spiritual lives. We, we go along and everything seems to be so routine. Everything is just clicking along the way, so normal, so easy. And then God brings into our life a struggle. God brings into our life a difficulty, a pain, a trouble. Something's going on, a dark valley. Something that gets our attention. And you know what? Suddenly we find ourselves overwhelmed by what is happening. And in that overwhelmingness of that moment, we we find ourselves, I need God now. We have a dependence upon God that we've never had before. We're reminded that without Him we can't do anything. We wonder about our pagan neighbors, how they get through anything in life when there's trouble. Because we couldn't even get to the next moment without realizing we're so dependent upon God. And it's in those moments that we learn things about our Savior that we could never have learned any other way. The trial drives us to the Word of God. And we learn things about God that we would have never seen before. And we become like Job at the end of Job. And Job's understanding of God is expanded in such a way that he never saw God. And in the end, we become like Paul was in 2 Corinthians when he prayed, God, take this thorn in the flesh away. Remove this pain from my life. God, get rid of it. 
God, who perfectly had orchestrated, said, no, I'm not going to do that. Nope, not going to do it. Because you need to learn something about you. you need to know something about me that you could never know any other way. And so Paul says, when I'm weak, I'll glory in my weakness then because when I'm weak, he's strong. If that's how God's strength is going to be seen, then I'll stay weak. You see, God's desire is that we be like his son. That's going to take a lot of pressure. Take a lot of pressure. So we know intuitively that all those pressure things work together for our ultimate good. They work together for us who are Christians. You may not fully understand. You may not know why, but God has planned it all, and He keeps it going. He keeps it all working together for your ultimate good. How do I know that? Because that's who God is. That's who God is. That's who God is. And we're going to see that next time. That's who God is. Because in verses 29 through 34, but particularly 29 and 30, God is doing the action. This is God working. And so Paul says, listen, you can be absolutely rest assured that you are in a position of no condemnation. Even in the worst of times. Because God has orchestrated even those moments for your good. And that proves that you are His child. Don't be pessimistic. Don't even be optimistic. Just be realistic. Be a realist. That's life. Well, let's pray. Lord, as we bow before you once again, just want to say thank you. None of us would willingly hug a cactus. But there are times in our life when you would drive us in that direction to embrace all things, knowing it comes from your gracious, merciful, caring, loving hand. And so, God, we want to thank you for what we have as we prepare our own hearts for communion to worship you. We think about how you have orchestrated our life, 
I know there are those among us, even here this morning, whose hearts are wrenched with pain. Emotional pain, physical pain, difficulties that are humanly unbearable. But you're our God, and we know that all things work for our ultimate good because we're your child. Lord, you certainly know what pain was when you endured the full wrath that we might even be able to be here and understand the simple principle that we heard this morning so that we could come and worship you not looking to ourself, looking to you and to you only, for we deserve nothing that we have received. So, Lord, this morning, open our hearts to that. Help them to be thankful in the moment, as hard as it is. For I know the difficulty and struggle doesn't always have a smile on its face. but it certainly can have a joy in its heart knowing that you are the one who has brought it all about. And that ought to satisfy our soul and help us rest in the security of knowing that we are your children. And so we thank you for these things. Use them for your glory and our growth. For the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.